Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. I'm your host again, uh, Ian Lewins, one of the consultants there, and I'm really pleased to be joined today uh, by Dr. Alistair Munro, who's a clinical research fellow in, in peds infectious diseases. Uh, good morning, Alistair. How are you? Good morning, Ian. I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on your venerable podcast. I'm delighted. Um, so before we sort of crack on, what, what I was interested in actually reading is, is um, what's your job actually involve? You're based in Southampton, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, I'm based in the clinical research facility in Southampton and my job is, is a split of two things. So half my time is spent um, sort of supervising, helping run early phase clinical trials in ch- children. Uh, so antibiotic trials and, and vaccine trials. And then the other half of my job is uh, sort of time to develop my own research interests. And at the moment, I'm sort of working up a, a, a PhD application, which I'm hoping to start in the next few months. Excellent. Um, so the, the reason uh, I sort of wanted to chat to you was, was, was there was a, there's a, th- a thread that you put together on Twitter, which is now, I think, currently sits as your uh, pinned tweet. Yes. Uh, and it's uh, at... APS Monroe, which was all about um, pediatrics and antibiotics and myth busting about that. And the reason I loved it was I read through every single one of those and thought, absolutely, 100% could not agree with this anymore. <laughs> so I thought we would sort of have a chat through those five myths today, if that's okay. Sounds great. Okay. So um, I really like myth number one, um, yes. which often explains a bit of, uh, takes a bit of explaining to some people. Um, and myth number one says, all bacterial infections need treating with antibiotics. Yes. Well, that is a myth. <laughs> um, you're right. I think conceptually, this is something that is is very different uh, from, I think, what most people imagine. And I think particularly in, in children, and it, you know, it makes sense why, why people would think this. Antibiotics are there for the express purpose of treating bacterial infections. So, so why wouldn't you? And I think what it boils down to is ultimately, I think sometimes we're totally sure actually what we're trying to achieve with antibiotics, Mm. particularly because a lot of the infections that we most commonly see in children would just go away on their own, whether we gave any antibiotics or not. So so what what ultimately are we trying to achieve? And I think it's difficult to reassure people that, that... there is an infection that you can treat and this is not necessary and people just need a lot of reassurance generally that you're not going to change the course of the illness for most children that complications of these infections are extraordinarily rare and the number of children you need to treat to prevent these complications is enormous so ultimately most of the time actually giving antibiotics to children for you know, benign respiratory infections, even if they are bacterial, the antibiotics are probably causing net harm to to most children. And that's really turning, uh, you know, what people's innate beliefs are on their heads a lot of the time. And so I think this is one of the myths I sort of spend most of my time talking about to junior doctors and particularly people who are, you know, coming through paediatric rotations, not as paediatric specialists, but maybe GPs and and uh, foundation this is yeah. that well yes you know this child does have you know a titus media could it be a bacteria yes but if we give them antibiotics how are we going to help the child and most of the time 
you're not. And so it, it's just about reassuring people that this is, you know, it, it's a sort of a, a, a reflex habit that, that needs to just be questioned and needs to be thought about a little bit more. And I think the, the from from my perspective, my practice, the classic example is the uncomplicated tonsillitis, which I know you've also been tweeting yeah. a fair bit about recently as well, is, you know, people say, oh, this child's got tonsillitis, I'm going to give them antibiotics. Often I would say, why? Yeah. And it sort of stopped people in their tracks slightly. Why are you giving antibiotics, given that they're almost certainly going to fight this infection off yeah, themselves? Exactly. And, and you know, and the, the, the poll I did on Twitter, I think, showed really that people aren't that sure or, or at least even if people are sure in their own minds we're not all treating for the same reasons <laughs> which I think does yes. does highlight that there's there's a bit of a problem there and part of this is historical obviously because in the past with tonsillitis the reason for treating and I think still particularly in the uh, the US guidelines you know people get really funny about group A strep for good reasons because you know it, it it's yeah. a nasty bug and it's got this history of famous non-separative complications which is primarily rheumatic fever and that was why we were treating it in the you know in the in the good old days but for whatever reasons now the strains of group a strep circulating are not rheumatogenic we almost never see cases of acute rheumatic fever from uh, you know native uh, uk children and and so really this historical thing of you know we must treat group a strep because we don't want children getting rheumatic fever for good reasons it's it just doesn't sit anymore. It's it's just not really a valid reason for for treating. But of course, that that practice has become ingrained, and so it's it's one that's sort of slowly being undone. And from from your perspective, what would be? Somebody might say, "Well, okay, I, I kind of get where you're coming from. They're likely to fight this off, but you know, parents are pushing for you to do something, and you want to do something. So, what's the harm in giving a short course of antibiotics?" Oh, oh yes, I do hear this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I think this is another thing. Well, I mean, this should have been one of my myths. I think is that uh, as a myth that antibiotics are harmless, that antibiotics are a, uh, are a low risk medicine. And I think the problem is, you know, yes, the immediate uh, side effects of, of antibiotics are, you know, they're not severe. They're not terribly pleasant. You know, about one in nine people get diarrhea and there's hypersensitivity reactions and that sort of thing. But more and more now we're realizing the really insidious harms of antibiotics exposure, particularly in really early life. And some of the recent papers in JAMA Pediatrics looking at, uh, you know, medicines that affect gut dysbiosis so uh, proton pump inhibitors h antagonists and, and antibiotics are associated with you know a doubling of your childhood risk of developing asthma atopic diseases and stuff like this and there's a whole host of research into uh, the link with early life exposure to antibiotics and and other conditions and the more we learn about the microbiome and how important it is that you know we maintain this good balance with bacteria that are there to help us the more we realize that all oh, perhaps you know eradicating all those things and sterilizing you know young children at an early age is not is not harmless and i think that's that's a really important message to sort of get across it's i think antibiotics are often seen as well you might get a bit of diarrhea but actually otherwise it's not a problem and if it doesn't work well, yeah so exactly what? yeah yeah no there's i think there's much more uh serious stuff uh at stake and I think it's one of those things where you know 
you need to be sure that what you're doing is of net benefit to the child. And I think for the vast majority of cases, it, it it's really not. Okay, let's move on then to excuse me to to myth number two. That's saying okay, there are there are some children who will need antibiotics, um, but myth number two says the following infections always need IV antibiotics, and you've included periorbital cellulitis, bacterial lymphadenitis, pyelonephritis, and yes. pneumonia. Yes, um, and again, this is something that uh, you know even some quite senior people I think feel that uh, some of these infections have historically i think you know have have always been treated with ivs but uh, this is again another paradigm shift that when you look at the studies and you compare success rates and you know there are actually some amazing studies particularly for for pyelonephritis you know the the failure rates of um oral versus iv are basically identical so uh, you know all of the indications are that unless you suspect bacteremia in a child with clinical pyelonephritis mm. There's really no reason to to jump in with IV antibiotics because at the end of the day, there, there isn't anything magical about putting an antibiotic into the vein. And most of the antibiotics that we use in children actually have really good oral bioavailability. You're getting, you know, 90 to 95 percent of most of these antibiotics into the bloodstream anyway. There is not a huge difference between bunging it into the vein and, you know, allowing the child to just swallow it if the same concentration of antibiotics ends up in the blood. Um, and I think the other thing is that people, I think, worry a lot about children failing on oral antibiotics. And look, it happens and it's not a big deal because we, you know, we've got a really good culture in paediatrics of safety netting. And when children go home, it's, you know, it's never off you go. We don't want to see you again. It's always, you know, yes, you can go home, but here are the red flag signs. If it's not better within a certain amount of time, you need to come back. And so, you know, I'll almost always treat each of those uh, infections, periorbital cellulitis, lymphadenitis, pyelonephritis and pneumonia, unless they've got complications at presentation or, you know, particularly severe disease, yeah. I'll always give antibiotics orally as a first line with appropriate safety netting. Because, you know, occasionally some of these antibiotics have uh, some of these infections you know, are, are caused by slightly more recalcitrant bugs, particular strains of uh, Haemophilus, uh, for example. And they, you know, they just won't go away completely. But, but the children come back and it's safe as long as they've got appropriate safety netting. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And certainly in my own practice, I personally, in even the last know five years for example seen quite a significant shift of moving much more towards using oral antibiotics as a first line and i also think that that people who come into our department so people who may be rotating through from adult ed or people who are gps actually find that quite a challenge and quite a difference from sort of maybe their practice with with adult yeah patients. absolutely and i i think part of that is because in paediatrics, in fact, one of the things I actually like about paediatrics is because doing anything to a child is infinitely more difficult than, than doing the same thing to an adult, you actually have to really think, is this absolutely necessary? You know, do I really need to subject this child yeah. to a cannula and, you know, give it IV, give the child IV antibiotics? Um, and, if, you know, if you don't really have to, then you shouldn't be doing it because again it's about you know net net benefits and 
net harms and you know with adults it's it's easy to you know bung a candela and give the antibiotics and, and off you go but you know i like the fact that we have to think harder with children and say well actually look most of these can just be dealt with with oral antibiotics so it, you know it's worth giving it a go yeah absolutely and, and again the, the important part of that of course is you know as well as, as giving the antibiotics is is that the huge importance of yeah, safety netting you know as you say if it's no better within a certain period of time you come back or if the child worsens yeah, you come yeah, back exactly yeah okay um let's move on then to, to myth number three and we're back to tom slides yeah. again um and myth number three says amoxicillin cannot be used for tonsillitis as it causes a rash if the child's got yes. EBV. this is a great myth <laughs> it's a great myth because it, it you know it initially came from uh, some quite good studies in the 1960s where people were seeing you know an association with uh, giving at the time ampicillin uh, for for sore throats and then children who were found to have you know uh, uh, Epstein Barr virus would come out with a rash and some of the you know these series were reporting between 90 and 100 percent of these children were getting uh, you know this this uh, sort of horrible maculopapular rash. Now, we do know that children who have a glandular fever with EBV will get a similar type of rash somewhere between 15 to 30 percent of the time. So we're not looking at this being, you know, entirely down to ampicillin. But over time, what's happened is ampicillin has fallen out of fashion because it's essentially been replaced by amoxicillin, which is it's an amino penicillin, but with a different structure. And since that's come into use, obviously, we're still giving antibiotics to some children with sore throats and some children have got amoxicillin. And in the more recent studies, actually, if you look at the, the rates of children getting rash with EBV, if they've been exposed to amoxicillin or not, it's, it's basically about the same rate. You're getting the baseline rate of rashes. So, you know, some children will still get a rash with amoxicillin and EBV, but they would have got the rash anyway just from the EBV. So essentially, this was a rash that seems to have just been caused for whatever reason by ampicillin. But now that we're not using ampicillin anymore, the same reaction doesn't appear to happen with amoxicillin. And so amoxicillin being infinitely more palatable than uh, penicillin V, which if anyone has ever tried liquid penicillin V, it is it is to be avoided at all costs. Um, we're locally, at least, we're recommending that if you're going to treat tonsillitis with antibiotics, that you use amoxicillin because essentially, I don't think a single child in the history of paediatrics has ever completed a 10-day course of four times a day penicillin V. So, if you're going to bother giving an antibiotic, give an antibiotic that that the child will take and hopefully complete the course of, and that would be uh, amoxicillin. Absolutely. I, I'm so pleased you said that because I was challenged by that by one of our very good uh, GP trainees on a couple yeah. of days ago. Um, and, you know, I, I think I said pretty much word for word. Uh, do you really think that a child's going to take 40 doses of a disgusting 40 doses? Absolutely yeah, I mean, no, no it's it, and I and, you know, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I can't blame the child. No, no it's it's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. So that's useful to know, because I mean, as I say, I've certainly for those few children where I'm choosing to give antibiotics, I've certainly moved over to, to amoxicillin and away from from Pen V because the, the compliance must be, as you say, pretty much yeah, zero. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
Excellent. I'm glad we agree. Um, it's yeah. your confirmation yeah. bias. So, myth number four then, moving on. And I like this one a lot, actually. Um, and I think this is a really important point. Myth number four says that broad spectrum antibiotics are stronger than narrow spectrum. Yeah. Uh, this is obviously not a myth that's that's specific to paediatrics. It's or this is obviously a very generalised thing, and you do hear people saying this to patients quite a lot. So, so particularly in inpatient medicine, you know, we'll be switching someone over from a narrow spectrum to a broad spectrum, and. You'll hear a doctor say, "Yeah, don't worry. We're putting them on a, a strong, an even stronger antibiotic, a, a even stronger, stronger antibiotic. antibiotic." And the truth is that the the spectrum of um, efficacy for an antibiotic is in no way inherently linked to its ability to kill, you know, whatever bugs it is that are that are sensitive to it. And and a really great example for this, I think, is for Staph aureus. So if you have a Staph aureus mm. that is sensitive to penicillin, penicillin is the most effective bug at killing that strain of Staph aureus. So, so it will have the lowest MIC, so lower than flucloxacillin and lower than vancomycin. And the thing is, there's so many different factors to take into account for antibiotics. It's There's obviously, if you're not sure what you're treating, there's the, the spectrum of activity because that's you know important you want to make sure that you will be covering whatever bug it is if it's unknown but even once you know the bug there's that particular strain sensitivity to what antibiotic you're using there's the penetration of the antibiotic into whatever space you want and you know some of the you know more broad spectrum gram positive agents like vancomycin and ticoplanin you know they will treat almost all gram positive bugs but they're, they're dreadful antibiotics. They're just not good at killing bacteria. And, you know, they come with a whole host of other problems. But I don't think I've seen a child in a therapeutic range for vancomycin, you know, in the last two years. Um, so the idea that, you know, oh, if we just broaden the spectrum, that will just be better at killing. It's just really, it's really not the case. You know, it will kill a, you know, a broader range of bugs. But for the particular bug you're trying to kill, broader is not necessarily better. And I guess this is something that we continue to hear, really. Um, and I, I wonder where this has come from, actually. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think it's because there's... Uh, I think it probably comes from treating patients who you suspect have infection. You know, they, they have signs of sepsis or whatever, and you, you don't know where it's coming from. And so if you start an antibiotic and the patient's not responding, what do you do? you broaden the spectrum of activity and then the patient's not responding mm. so what do you do is you broaden the spectrum of activity and i think that this sort of uh, you know gives you a feeling like well this antibiotic is is better so you know I've, I've moved up to a better antibiotic but but what it really is is you've just gone oh well it's not working perhaps there's a bug that's resistant to the antibiotic i'm using so i just need to broaden the the spectrum you know slightly but you know, when you're going up from keftriaxone to tazazindimeropenem, if you've got a bug that's sensitive to keftriaxone, you've not done anyone any favours by, you know, putting them on tazazin or meropenem. And, you know, actually, you know, particularly for some strains of bugs like Staph aureus, going more narrow spectrum is better. So as soon as you've identified a bug like Staph aureus, you want that, you want that child on flucloxacillin straight away. You're not going to keep them on meropenem. Do you know what I mean? It's... But this is, yeah. again, 
that type of practice of it's not working, let's broaden it, let's broaden it. I think that just sort of gives people a feeling that, you know, the, the broader spectrum antibiotics are, you know, even better. And maybe this goes back to I think something we discussed previously on, on Twitter about are you giving it to make you as the doctor feel better rather than necessarily yeah the exactly and, and I think there is a sense of that you know this this worry that you've missed something you know have I missed a bug that's that's you know going to be resistant but I think even on a I think even on a more basic sense there's just this feeling that you need to be on you know quote unquote the best uh, antibiotic and, and people mm. feel that you know these really broad spectrum agents are better but but that's it's often not the case Okay. Um, and now moving on to the fifth and final myth, again, one I really like, um, which is something that's very much in, ingrained, I think, in people, is myth number five says you must wait 48 hours for blood cultures before stopping IV antibiotics. Yes, yes this is a great myth. <laughs> and I think, I, I think yeah, again, this yeah. is, I think this is probably partially historical, um, and, and a lot of it's probably to do with the way that uh, uh, blood cultures have previously been reported and so in the past it was someone going to a machine and checking it or you know on a sort of regular basis to see if any bugs have grown whereas we're now almost all blood culture machines you know used in microbiology labs have what's called continuous monitoring so once the bottle is in the machine the machine is you know every you know, few minutes is checking for a, a sort of an exponential rise in carbon dioxide indicating metabolic activity of, of growing bacteria and so the lab staff are alerted you know at the moment that the machine has detected bacterial growth you know the machine flags up a little light where that particular blood culture is and 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 so it, there's nothing magic happens at 48 hours. There's not a there's not a 48 hour check where someone goes looks at the bottle and goes that's fine that's that's done that's that's negative the test is finished. You know actually most people keep those bottles on the machines for five days or more. So it's not mm-hmm. like someone suddenly binned it at 48 hours and the test is negative. It's a continuously monitored test. So the 48 hour thing is, you know, is, is partially, I think, a, a historical remnant. And just also because of previous studies that have looked at, you know, what percentage of blood cultures that flag positive are positive within 24 hours, 36 hours, 40 hours, whatever. And, and by 48 hours, you're at, you know, 99%. So pretty high. But, but really, you know, we're, we're not always looking for 99% of everything for every tests we do because you have to really think about your pre-test probability and we, we still yes. have you know a lot of protocols for children you know, like the child with fever and a non-blanching rash or you know uh, sort of febrile infants who still look well but people feel funny so we start them on antibiotics even though no one really suspects you know they've got a serious infection we do still treat a lot of children with empirical antibiotics with a very low baseline suspicion that they've actually got a bacteremia and in which case waiting for 48 hours is really not necessary because by 24 hours 90 percent of all blood cultures that are going to be positive are positive by 36 hours it's 95 percent so you're really getting very marginal 
gains by waiting, you know, an extra day or so. And, and often that's the difference between another visit to hospital if you're ambulating, another dose of kefiaxone. And, yeah. you know, it, you you can take a very pragmatic approach to these sorts of things. So, uh, you know, there's there's nothing magic about 48 hours. You just need to actually weigh up, you know, the risk of the patient in front of you and what do they present with what were their other blood results and you know, have we found a virus, you know, in their snotty nose since then? Uh, yeah. And, you know, that there's no sort of golden gate that gets crossed at, at 48 hours. You can, you can make, you know, a judgment based on the child in front of you. I know, absolutely. And I think when you sort of stop and logically think about this 48 hour cutoff, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. That's as you say, nothing magic happens at that. No, no, hour. and and you know it does. Uh, well, I can understand it, but it does still sort of uh, give me shivers when people go, "Oh, you know, uh, the blood cultures aren't back yet. The blood cultures never come back. They've, they've not, you know, they don't go anywhere. It's, it's <laughs> going to be on the machine for for five days. You know, they're they're consistently monitored. The you know the blood culture. If if you've not seen a result, it's because they're still negative. You know they're they are negative until they're positive. And we just have an arbitrary thing where most labs will, you know, will spit out a result on the computer by 48 hours. I mean, locally now, our, actually ours are giving results at 36 hours to try and change, right. you know, this, uh, this sort of historical thing about 48 hours. And actually, we, we've, we're making a move to say, if you're not that concerned, it is fine to stop at 24 hours. You can review the child you know, if you've ambulated them the next day or review them on the ward round. And if the cultures are still negative at 24 hours, if you're, if you feel safe, just, just stop. It's fine. Okay. And I guess that the, you know, the, the bottom line, the thing that draws all these myths together is really trying to improve uh, antibiotic stewardship. Yeah, isn't it? absolutely. And it, it's a real passion of mine because Ian, I love antibiotics. And what I would really love is for antibiotics to keep working, to keep being useful. Yeah. Um, and we've got this really sort of fantastic, but also slightly troublesome paradigm in paediatrics where we have the most incredible set of vaccinations, which have you know, all but eliminated some of the scourges of infant mortality in the past, you know. It's just so rare now to see, you know, meningococcal meningitis or bacteremia in children. Yeah. Haemophilus influenza B. I mean, I can't. I don't think I've ever seen a case of invasive hip infection in a child. You know, epiglottitis it has basically disappeared, and you know, pneumococcal yeah. vaccinations are so effective now. So we, you know, we've reduced the amount of these really, really serious infections significantly, you know, precipitously. But at the same time, you know, there are still some children who get sepsis and it's really hard to find them. And, you know, there's a whole host of stuff now about, you know, sepsis awareness. And, you know, we're constantly being told to think sepsis and do a sepsis trigger tool and all this other stuff. And so it's really hard to not give antibiotics when you're being told all the time you must think about <laughs> sepsis, this child could yes. have sepsis. And, and you know, that, and that's right. And, you know, some children look fine. And later on, they get really, really sick. But most children who look fine are fine. And, we, you know, we can't treat all of them. And so, 
you know, we have to balance this up against this sort of global emergency that we have with, you know, terrible antibiotic resistance that's becoming progressively worse, you know, and we're now seeing cases of carbo carbapenem resistant, you know, Enterobacteriaceae in the UK. And, you know, this is a real problem because, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm actually involved in some of the trials for these new, you know, uh, antibiotics in the, in the UK, some of the gram negative um, sort of, you know, uh, carbapenem sparing or saving drugs and there's not that many of them and it, if we don't get better at appropriately restricting antibiotics or, or just giving them you know when it's of net benefit to the child you know we're soon going to be in a place where you can die of, sep of sepsis from you know cutting your wrist from you know from a routine surgery and you know that's not a good place to go back to absolutely um and i think you know we all have as you say we, we all have a responsibility to 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 do this and hopefully um by doing the myth busting work that, that you you're doing here and that will continue to improve I hope so. uh alistair thank you so much for that that that's been fantastic i think this has become an absolute must listen podcast um and thank oh, well, you thank so you much, so much for, for having me on it's a real pleasure <laughs>